Hello, friends, and welcome to the StoryForge podcast, where making things matters. Uh, I'm Lyle Smith, your host, and I should say welcome back. Uh, This is the first episode of our new season, and I'm really looking forward to the bunch of people I'm collecting over the next several weeks and beyond. Uh, They all have really compelling and interesting and maybe a little inspiring stories that I hope you'll all enjoy. Uh, And today is no different. Today uh, is a conversation I recorded several weeks ago uh, with someone I was very excited to reconnect with. David McClay Kidd is one of the most recognized golf course architects in the world. Uh, I was fortunate enough to cross paths with him years ago when I was visiting St. Andrews to play golf, uh, and we were matched up totally at random by the starter on the new course. Uh, Listen for the story of how we met. Uh, I think it's kind of a fun, interesting uh, tidbit. Uh, And uh, just so you know, I have about 15 minutes or so of extended conversation I recorded and popped up onto our Patreon site. So if you'd like to hear that and you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash makingthingsmatters and subscribe. Uh, We're going to be putting more and more extras up there over time uh, that I think you'll enjoy. So, uh, while I'd be hard-pressed to say that David and I are really friends, uh, we've remained friendly over the years and touched base from time to time, uh, and I'm grateful he was generous enough to agree to chat with me here. Uh, To be honest, I sat on the recording for a while because right after I finished it, I thought I'd totally tanked it. I thought I utterly, utterly screwed it up. I thought I let it wander and didn't get to ask any of the questions I'd prepared. I thought I missed a whole boatload of stuff um, that I wanted to get at, and I hoped I hadn't embarrassed myself in front of David. But when I finally went back to listen to it, the most remarkable thing happened. Not only was it better than I thought, it turned out to be one of the best conversations I've had since I started the show, I think. Not the typical golf interview either. It's really about a guy, a designer and an artist, who makes very large things of beauty and utility and fun and adventure on a grand scale and on a living canvas. And I think that's exactly what I wanted to get at. So here's David McClay Kidd. There we go. Okay. so you're in, you're, where are you? You're in Bend, Oregon. Bend, Oregon. Uh, out in, out uh, in the country. Yeah, this is uh, a rare for me, especially this time of year. I'm usually running around like crazy, trying to get a whole bunch of things finished before winter hits. So oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I was, I think I was going the last two weeks barring one night and then I'm home all of this week and then going again from Monday next week for quite a while. Oh, so. Boy trying to get things wrapped up at the end of a very long summer. I I thought of you because, you know, everyone's, I tell this story about how I met you. Yeah. And of course I I wouldn't say we're friends. I'd say we're, we're friendly. We've, we've crossed paths uh, a couple of times years and years ago. Um, And I, I tell that story when I'm, when I'm out playing golf with my friends who are all, you know, many of us are, are sort of architecture geeks this way, you know, amateur, amateur, amateur experts. Yeah. Uh, which I'm sure you have your, you run in, into from time to time. 
Uh, and I tell this story about, you know, how I just went out to play one day and they, and the guy, the starter was like, oh, we have a couple of guys coming in in about an hour. Do you, you know, if you want to meet up with somebody and play with them, and I'm like, sure. I'll. So I sat down and had lunch and then you and Paul came and I was like, oh, and, and I, I just thought it was hysterical because I, I was listening to the way you guys were talking about the new course and kind of pointing out things and saying, oh, well, look at how they do it here. We could do it this way or you know we could do it better than that and that kind of stuff and i i thought well what do you guys do for a living and then all of a sudden you're like oh well, we're golf course architects I'm like oh, well, really have you done anything i would know and then of course it was bandon dunes which was all in the press at the time uh and i was like oh i know who you are so that's what i'm after that sounds a little uh, a little twist on what i normally do which is just bang on about uh golf uh ad nauseum so it might be interesting to put a different twist on it well i hope so i like to think so i mean my first thing i went i was just looking at your site and um i i realized i hadn't looked at your uh a ton of your social media connected to your your business site and so i'm like oh look he has a youtube channel let me check this out and i went to your youtube channel and i realized that like all of your video none of your videos have anything to do with golf they all have to do with flying yeah yeah <laughs> yeah, there's a lot a lot of fly. flying is a definite passion and something i've been doing for a decade or so and i wrap it into business uh the, the two things are are linked so i get to enjoy my passion for aviation while i'm getting to and from different projects so it's a really symbiotic uh passions between golf and aviation That's i'm not the first i think arnold palmer was probably the first I was going to ask about that because I, I think the, the first I know of anyway is Arnie. And, yeah. uh, and, and um, you know, of course, the, when, you're, when you're in a business where, that requires you to be in so many different places, uh, sometimes at the same time, um, you know, maybe having a plane handy is, is really the way to go. Yeah, uh, it's, it's the ultimate luxury. Uh, <laughs> it's a magic carpet, a time machine. You know, those statements are not... Uh, without merit, uh, right. able to jump across the country at your whim in only a few hours uh, provides, you know, doubles the amount of time I can expend on things. Uh, and the actual getting to and from is fun. You know, it's adventurous. Uh, I have to come out of my golf mode uh, and go into my, uh, you know, pseudo professional pilot mode, a bit like the I guess it has to be a bit more than the amateur architects. I have to be a a, a damn near a professional pilot. Otherwise, mm -hmm. really bad things happen. So I have to expend as much time uh, learning and studying and training about aviation, uh, close to anyway, uh, as a professional pilot would. Uh, and yet my real business is, is golf course architecture. Sure. Sure. It's, well, how did you, how did you get into flying? Uh, well, it's an easy story. Back when I came to the States in the uh, early 2000s, uh, you know, Mike Kaiser, the owner at Bandon, was flying privately even then uh, from his home in Chicago. Uh, I, I jumped on his plane a couple of times while I was building Bandon. I was still in my mid-20s. Uh, Bandon was obviously a sort of meteoric success that was somewhat unexpected. Uh, and suddenly I had other clients that had private planes and they were sending planes for me. And, and then on my own bat, I was starting to charter a very small light aircraft to, to jump around the West Coast. 
uh, and I realized the flexibility it gave me uh, at cost that was bearable. And as the as my business grew, we chartered larger aircraft until we bought our first share in aircraft, uh, and everything seemed to be going swimmingly until the recession in 08, 09. Right. And all my clients dried up and I didn't need an airplane anymore. <laughs> uh, and I I mourned the loss of, of my uh, client list, but I think I mourned the loss of the aircraft even more. Right. Uh, and when I spoke to <laughs> my friends uh, who were also into aviation, some of whom were pilots, they said, oh, quit whining. You got nothing else to do with your time. Why don't you learn how to fly? And I said, well, I couldn't do that. I'm in my early 40s. You know, I have a young family. Uh, and they said, well, you know, it's not as hard as you think. Try, take a lesson, try it. So yeah. I went to the local airport. I paid my, I think back then it was like 60 bucks for your first 45-minute lesson. It's kind of a sink the hook deal. Yeah, and, uh, I think. Yeah, and <laughs> do, do one lesson and you're hooked. And yeah. before you know it, you're you're knee deep and taking lessons every other day and looking at airplanes you might buy. And and then you quickly realize that as the uh, pilot, uh, even if you have significant resources, you can't just go out and buy a jet and fly it. It doesn't just doesn't work like that. It takes years of training and qualifications and proficiency and currency and, and on and on and on before you get to a level where your uh, skill set is high enough to actually command a high-performance uh, jet-powered aircraft. Uh, and that's kind of where I am now, but it's taken me oh, over a decade to get there. Right. Uh, and, you know, now uh, our our companies are, are you know, of modest size and we're able to justify it and we can jump around uh, pretty much the whole of North America. I mean, we can, the aircraft we had now, we have now can make it easily from Central America to Canada uh, and site yeah. to site. So it gives us massive flexibility to be able to, to be on projects really fast. And from my own personal point of view, it's uh, the juxtaposition is fascinating. You know, I, I spend my days on site during the heat of the creative processes coming up with ideas with my crew and I and those ideas are highly flexible there's no wrong answer it's uh, you know we can we can twist and turn a golf hole a million different ways it's a like sculpture or filmmaking you know there's a huge amount of a technical necessity but an even larger amount of artistic want where you 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 aren't really boxed in a corner. You can be incredibly uh, creative and come up with all sorts of solutions to uh, an interesting riddle. And yet at the end of that day, I might be driving back to an airport and I'm pulling out my iPad and all of that creativity is gone. I, I turn into a, you know, an automaton where you know, I'm following procedure. I'm being highly disciplined. I think of myself as, you know, uh, uh, in my head, at least I'm a professional pilot at this point. I need to uh, be extremely disciplined about what we do. I can't allow myself to be deviated or, or make any deviations from a process. And so right. it's a really amazing juxtaposition to spend, you know, eight hours on site, waving my arms and being creative. <laughs> 
And then in the space of 15 minutes, I, I turn into, you know, a, a, a pilot that can't have any creativity at all. Yeah, you need to just execute at that point. Yeah, you're you're following processes, and you're the all of the training that a pilot does is so that when things go wrong, there's very little thinking. You know, you yeah. you're the training has been burnt in so hard that you're going to follow a procedure without really having to uh, consciously recall it and think about it. You're you're actually your your actions are going to be second nature, and you're going to execute. Uh, and of course, in my professional life as a golf course architect, that's almost the worst thing you can do. If you are, if you are automatically reacting to every situation in a pre-programmed way, then the creativity is dead, and you right. are just cookie-cuttering ideas. So, uh, for me, I'm in my golf course architecture. I'm constantly trying to think, what is the obvious solution, and then how can I not do that? You know, what, right. what's the other solution? What are the other things I could do that would be less obvious? How can I push something off center? How can I uh, create discomfort? How can I create adventure? Uh, how do I create mystery? And all of those things are not uh, obvious. They're they're not the process answer to a problem. Right. Well, this is really interesting to me because yeah, I think you've, you've kicked open about four or five different doors I want to go through. Uh, on this idea, but but the thought, you know, the difference between being a pilot and, a, and an architect or a, uh, I wanted to ask you, I, I have it in my notes here about um, sort of the difference between an artist and a craftsman or an artist and an artisan. Cause you have in your business, I think you have a little bit of both, you know, you have, oh, you, you have, huge. you have the, the ultra creativity and then you have the, okay, there's things we need to do. And, and there's repeatable things that you can, that you've learned from previous projects that you can put to work in a current. Well, I, th I think the, the, the difference is very clear. It's the difference between art and architecture. Right. You know, art can be of itself. It can be entirely for the artist's pleasure. In fact, if it's not for the artist's pleasure, then I'm not sure it really could be art. You know, if it's highly commissioned and highly programmed, you know, it loses its soul. You know, the the art in it, in its essence, I think, has to be create the has to be the creative expression of purely the artist, purely for the artist's joy and pleasure. And if others find joy and pleasure in it, great. He might not die impoverished. <laughs> uh, whereas architecture in all of its forms, whether it's a landscape garden or a golf course or a skyscraper or uh, uh, an airport or a hospital, there is form and function. And that form and function have to balance. There has to be a balance between them. If you have all function, then you lose form. If you have all form, you generally lose function. And so a golf course is somewhat no different. I, I can't build something that is full of form that the golfer would stand out on and go, wow, that is just mind blowing, but it can't be maintained or it can't even be built in the first place or the weather is going to be such in that location that it can't be sustained. Right. You know, so there's all of these issues where I, I can come up with an idea and then I have to balance it with the function of what it's for. How do I get maintenance traffic through the, here? How do I get a cart path in and out of it if people are driving carts? How do I get heavy equipment in a couple of times a year when the superintendent has to do bigger operations than just mowing the grass? 
Right. Uh, uh, how do I irrigate it if if you're in a location where the grass will only grow if it's irrigated? Right. So the irrigation systems have a whole bunch of uh, simple complexity to them that can drive the design process. So right. I can say, well, I want to do this. This is a really cool idea. Uh, and my own crew will say, well, these irrigation heads will only work at their best if they're 60 feet apart. Right. And your idea is 24 feet and 73 feet. You <laughs> could make that work, but it's not going to be easy. If you could, if you could work in multiples of 60 feet, our, our life is easier. So, okay, how do I take my cool idea and then have to, you know, adapt it, water it down even, hopefully adapt right. so that we get form and function to balance. And I, I guess that's, that speaks to people who are architects uh, as opposed to artists is our world is one of form and function. And we're constantly trying to balance those two competing forces to find the best solution for the end user, something that they feel works easily for them and right. yet is uh, inspiring, enthralling, uh, uplifting. You know, you don't want to walk into a hospital that is entirely functional and has a lack of soul. You want to walk into a place that's airy and light and, you know, has a sense of soul that you don't feel like you're walking into a morgue. Well, and you're and you're building and you're building things that that you got you get two things that come to mind my mind all the time when I when I think about these ideas is is that you're you're building something that is a living thing, too. It's not yeah. just like you build a building, you build a skyscraper. It it has to have you know offices and restrooms and and meeting rooms yeah. and views. Yeah, we're we're partnering with nature. Yeah, well, that's, I love that. That's nice. And it's it's so when you're done, it continues to grow. I hope it does. <laughs> well, that, and that goes back to that form and function issue. If if the architect, if the golf architect, if we if we focus on the golf part, right. if the golf architect is not in some way partnering with Mother Nature, guess who wins? Right. Not us, right? right. Mother yes, Nature will will take over. Exactly. And so golf courses are uh, undeniably an artifice in the landscape. They're not mother nature, right? There, there's some human intervention where we're clearing ground and grassing it and using species that may or may not be native. And we're putting bunkers in, in a landscape that would never have a depression with sand in it. Right. Uh, and so there are all these artifices that we're putting into nature. And then we're hoping that mother nature doesn't just wash it away. For instance, if you take it to uh, a sort of nth degree, many, many golf courses exist in floodplains. It's a, it's a common use of floodplain or flood-prone land to build a golf course. So if a golf course architect were building in a floodplain and they build a bunch of features that will be washed away in the first flood, there is no sustainability at all. Right. The first the first time that piece of land does what Mother Nature wants to do with it, which is to use it as flood control or to flood it, that golf course is damaged forever. So right. when you're in that location, the architect has to be extremely aware of the, the primary purpose of that land in Mother right. Na Nature's eyes is to survive as a, a floodplain. And so a golf course has to adapt to allow that to happen. You can't be building up everything because it'll wash away. Right. Uh, That's an interesting planting a field of trees. 
Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting thought is that I, how you said um, what what Mother Nature intended for that piece of land, piece of property. Um, so, you know, and and you you look at golf courses over the years from from the early courses in, in Scotland to the, the more penal courses they built in the late 80s um, that had all kinds of buildups and railroad ties and everything else in the world. Um, how much your sort of philosophy, and I, 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 you even say it in, in some of the stuff material you have out there is that your philosophy is ever changing the same way the, the sort of earth is. How much of your philosophy is working with the property that's there? And how much of your, your approach to building a golf course is, okay, I'm going to build something that I have in my mind, regardless of what's there. I don't think that part of my philosophy has ever changed. I think from uh, my roots as the as a superintendent's son in Scotland, you know, I I was born into a country and a culture and a golf culture that was extremely minimalist and naturalist. You know, the golf courses of the British Isles you know, were built at a time where they didn't have giant bulldozers. They they didn't have irrigation systems or, or fancy drainage. So the golf courses are, are necessarily simply laid out across land that was very accepting of their presence. Uh, coming to America, obviously, we do have, you know, giant resources to build golf courses. Uh, but even then, I try really hard on every project to find uh, what parts of Mother Nature would want to coexist with a golf course. You know, I, I almost never propose non-native species. Uh, I always try and uh, limit the uh, uh, impact that we have on the landscape, reducing the earthworks that are done, uh, keeping natural waterways, uh, riparian corridors, building wetlands, all of those things have never changed. I've always uh, been thrilled by the thought of taking a piece of land and maybe trying my very, very hardest to be a net positive uh, on that landscape. I mean, quite often, the landscapes we're working in are already touched by man. Uh, and, the, the, you know, maybe the average member of the public doesn't realize it. You know, we, we did a project in Wisconsin four years ago called Sand Valley. Uh, and to the uninitiated, they might look at it and say, well, you know, you chopped down hundreds and hundreds of acres of trees uh, and opened up all this open sand. But what they might not know is prior to doing any work, you know, we did a bunch of research. We figured out that all of those trees were planted 150 years ago by the settlers as forestry, commercial timber. Uh, the the uh, animals and insects that thrive and survive in that foreign uh, uh, Norwegian spruce is extremely limited. So you've actually got a very uh, artificial landscape. What we found out was what should be there is a pine oak savanna that is a combination of open sand and sedge grasses and uh, and native species. So in building the golf course, we also tried to reestablish literally hundreds and hundreds of acres of pine oak savanna. Uh, and so I think any ecologist that looks at that land would agree that the golf course has actually been a net positive 
Uh, and that's common. We, we're often working in farmland that's been over farmed, forestry land that's uh, not been, uh, the, the tree husbandry hasn't been done correctly. Right. So there's there's all sorts of opportunity where in the end, someone might say, well, it's still a golf course, it's still artificial. And you can say, yes, but given where we started, right. where this was when we started, we're still creating a net positive. Right. That's interesting. I like that. I remember because I grew up um, I grew up in central New Jersey and I was a, uh, a caddy at Somerset Hills Country Club, uh, which is a early Tillinghast design. Uh, and when I was a kid there, um, they had tons and tons of like pine trees all around in between the holes, kind of screening things and, and all this. And then in the last, I don't know, 20 years. I'll say I'll say 20 years. They've uh, they did a, a massive sort of renovation project and and where they took out a lot of the, uh, the, the somebody found the, the story is somebody found the original plans and uh, went back and decided to make it look like it did the day Tillinghast walked off the property. And so they started cutting trees down and they and and of course remembering it the way I did as a kid, I was like, oh, all those great trees are gone now. And then you look at you look at it now that the project's done. You're like, holy cow! This is an entirely different piece of property than I remember, at least visually. Yeah. Um, and, and a lot of those there. trees were probably planted. They were planted long after the golf course was there, and and yeah, a lot they, of the stuff that was there it was an old farmland piece of farmland and and sort of horse track at one point, um, and that they built the golf course on. Um, so yeah, those trees weren't really supposed to be there in the first place. Um, so it was interesting to see, you know, and I, I think in the end, it's a, it's a better, it's a, it's a, it's a prettier piece of property. It's probably a healthier piece of property. Um, and it's a better golf course, I think, as a result. So you were, your dad was a, uh, the superintendent at Glen Eagles. I read. He, well, yeah, he was, that was the last place he was a superintendent at in Scotland. He was mm -hmm. superintendent at a few, a few places before that. Mm -hmm. I, and at Glen Eagles was the place that he ended up at in the early 80s when I was a young teenager. Okay. And so the, the latter part of my adolescence, I was at Glen Eagles and seeing these old James Braid golf courses from the early 1900s. Uh, and the old plans were still laying around. My dad still poured over them and it had James Braid's little pencil notes all over them. Uh, so... Uh, but, you know, that's probably what influenced me the most were, were those formative years as a young teenager, son of the head greenkeeper at Glen Eagles with this old James Braid 36 hole layout that had been pretty well abused since the Second World War. Right. And so my father in the early 80s took it upon himself to renovate these courses. And that's why he studied the history of James Braid and found the old photos that he could and uh, old plans and and slowly but surely over almost 30 years uh, spent his time uh, renovating those courses back to their former glory. Fantastic. Is that is that what got you uh, interested in, in this part of the business? Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, I spent every single moment I wasn't at school on the golf courses. So I was raking bunkers and mowing greens and filling divots and doing winter projects, building bunkers and tees and uh, alterations to greens and doing all this my whole childhood. Uh, and I, I knew that I wanted to work in the golf business. I just didn't 
I didn't, I don't think I even really realized that golf course architecture was a thing at that <laughs> point. I mean, right. I, in Scotland in the eighties, there weren't any golf courses being built. Uh, so I don't know if, uh, and the golf course architects, you know, James Braid, he was a, he was born in the 1800s. So th this was something that to me, probably as a 15 year old seemed like a, a storybook, a thing that happened in history books. It wasn't real. And it, it wasn't until I went to college and then in, uh, I was an intern for a golf construction company and it was a, a Johnny Miller design that I, I worked on. And at that point, I started to figure out like, oh, okay. So obviously these architects, you know, it's, it, James Braid was the best golfer of his day. And so was Johnny Miller. And here right. I see these things being built. Uh, and I started to pay much more attention uh, and figured out that building golf courses was my absolute passion. I, I loved it. I loved everything about building them. Uh, and the only thing I didn't like about building them was having to build them uh, in somebody else's vision, right. uh, especially right. somebody else who was on another continent uh, and really, from what I could tell, didn't spend a whole lot of time on it. Uh, right. So there's me, you know, pouring my heart and soul as a as an intern, trying to make sure that every part of that form and function balanced. Uh, and then having somebody from America come over and say, no, I don't like it, change it, or yes, I like it, that's exactly what I meant, when I knew that, that neither were true. Uh, so at that point, I think I decided, uh, I'm going to see if I can work into golf course design in order to be able to build, which was, was and is my true passion, right. uh, without the oversight interference of a third party that might not be as invested in the end result as I am. I, it's funny. I, I laugh at this because part of, part of the story I tell about how we met and is one of the conversations, you may not remember this because uh, you guys were working on the, uh, it was still called the number seven course at the time, uh, which became the castle course. And uh, we were out somewhere in the midst of a round on the new course in St. Andrews. And, um, I overheard you guys talking about, um, I don't know if it was about that particular course, but it might've just been in general about how like members complain about this and that, and you know, oh, well, that's not fair. That's not a fair feature. That's not a fair, you know, thing that's too severe whatever. And I just laughed. And I remember you saying, what are you laughing at? And I said, uh, if they want fair, they should go back to bowling. It's not, well, it's not <laughs> supposed to be fair. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, golf is uh, is definitely uh, not fair at times, but sometimes it's not fair the other way. That's true. I mean, it goes either way, and that's that's sort of the beauty. That's that's what I love about it personally is that it's it's up to you to deal with what the course gives you. Yeah, it is absolutely is. Uh, and my father always told me as a kid that you know golf was like life; it wasn't fair. Uh, and you did have to deal with what it gave you and you needed to be able to deal with it in a mature adult manner. You're not throwing golf clubs and cursing and swearing, you know, that, that he believes and my father's still around, you know, he believed then and now that, you know, playing around golf with someone was a great insight into their soul, their, their demeanor, their ability to deal with, uh, good luck and bad luck. 
you know, their, their inadequacies and their, their, you know, the things they get right. Uh, I think that's right on the mark. Yeah, I think it really is. I mean, I, I play golf. Every time I look to hire someone, I go play golf with them. Uh, and you know, it's a great insight to their abilities. Now I, I'm not looking for a guy to be a plus two. I just want to know what he does when he chunks a wedge, you know, I, I played with the same group for years, every Saturday. And I, I remember one time I, I hit a shot on a dog leg, right? There's a big Oak tree on the corner and I hit it. So the ball landed right behind the base of the Oak tree and I couldn't get, you can't move it forward at all. And I just, uh, I, and I grabbed it, I popped it out and knocked it up on the green and made my bogey. And my friend laughed at me and I said, what are you laughing at? And he said, he said, you know, you have like the perfect personality for this game. Cause if that happened to me, I'd be throwing clubs and breaking things. And I, said, and I don't know, I put it there. And nothing would change. I have know, to figure out how to get it out, you know? Yeah. Uh, all of that angst I see in golfers is after the fact. Right. It's after the fact. I mean, it's just pointless. It's just a waste of energy. Just right. move on. Right. Uh, I was not happy about it, by the way. No, gosh, no. no. None of us are. <laughs> you know, golf kicks you in the teeth more often than it, you know, pats you on the back. Right. And, uh, I, you know, it's like life. It probably does the same thing. And so what do you do? You, you know, you can't bitch about it. You just got to pick yourself up and like, okay. How do I how do I extricate myself from a position I put myself in? That's absolutely uh, true. Yeah. And and how do I make the best of the lemons I've been served? You know, what do I do? And uh, and I think those are wonderful analogies for life. Uh, to to be able to play a game in just a few short hours with the people you love the most, uh, and yet have to go through what seems at the moment to be pain and anguish. Right. Uh, and then right. have to struggle through it together uh, and tell your buddy, hey, you know, don't worry about it. The next one will be better. And That's then it. hopefully they tell you the same thing. I love those things about golf. They don't exist in any other sport. You don't root for your competitor when you're bowling. It's true. It's absolutely true. You know, and it's funny. All those little things, I think it was Hogan said, the most important shot is the next one. Yeah. You know, things like that are um, – you know, so do you have do you have a golfer in mind when you're creating something? Do you have a, a you know, because I know that I, you hear things like, you know, Nicholas builds courses for Nicholas and stuff like that, which is, yeah, I don't know if it's true. High faith. Uh, well, that's probably a good thing because most of us have high fades. So uh, <laughs> Nicholas was predetermined to be liked by 95% of all golfers. Oh, it's true. Built for a high fade. <laughs> uh, I would say my, my business, the Achilles heel of my profession is that you're right. They do build with a golfer in mind. And that golfer they have in mind is all too often the best golfer of the day. Right. So... You know, a decade ago, golf course architects couldn't get Tiger Woods out of their head. You know, today they can't get Dustin Johnson out of their head. And tomorrow they won't be able to get Cam Smith out of their head, whoever it happens to be. So uh, I think that that is is an Achilles heel and one that maybe I, for a period of time, was guilty of. Uh, Now, you know, I spent last week on a project that we're building for the Dormy Network in Nebraska. uh, And the uh, the family that own the Dormy network 
the matriarch and patriarch are in their late 60s, 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the son that I deal with the most is in his early 30s and is a plus two. Right. And when we when I'm walking around the golf course with the crew who, who've uh, I've uh, who've met these people, I say, you know, the the father, he's going to be on this tee. You know, we know that he hits it. You know, he, he's a good he's a good golfer. I've played with him a couple of times. He's a good golfer, but he's in his 70s. He doesn't hit it 210 yards. Right. You know, it's probably in that range. You know, if he hits one 240, he hit it right out of the screws. Right. You know, he's hitting it in the low 200s every time. Whereas his son, he's probably pushing 300 yards on the fly. Right. So when we're walking through these holes, I'm always using just because it's their golf course, you know, they're the the people paying for this. They're a great example of, you know, where's the mom hitting it from? Well, she's here. Well, you're asking her to carry 80 yards. I don't think she carries it 80 yards every time. She only carries it 40 yards every time, you know, where the sun can carry it 280 yards every time. So, you know, we're trying harder than I've ever tried to adapt the entire golf hole from tips uh, to ladies tee or forward tee right. to try and accommodate all those swing speeds and different levels of ability uh, and trying to integrate that in. You know, the I think we spend too much time concentrating on the very back tee as far back as could possibly go and then progressively losing focus as the tee set moves forward. Uh, until when you get to the absolute forward tee, I think most golf course architects are barely giving it any thought. Right. Uh, and that's because they're all men. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, elite women's golf doesn't get near the press that elite men's golf gets. Uh, and yet they are often the decision maker. And then you get to the green here. You know, here's here's me getting in the weeds of my business. You know, when you get to the green, the, again, the my business focuses all too often on the elite golfer who can hit a six iron with backspin and a six iron is going to stop in 12 feet. Right. Well, that six iron is a three wood for that player off the forward tee. Right. Right. That that six iron for an elite player is pushing down near 200 yards. It's 180 yard, 190 yard shot. Right. Well, we just said that a slow swing speed player might not have hit a driver 210. Right. So that same six iron is now a three wood. There is no stopping that ball ever. I mean, that ball is landing at 160 and running 30 yards to get to 190. Right. So as a golf course architect, I have to start thinking about if I want those players to have fun and enjoy the game, how do I get the green to have shapes around it so that they have that opportunity to still play those low trajectory, low spin shots. I will ask for accuracy because that's part of the game. But if they are able to play the shot that they're physically strong enough to hit, shouldn't they be allowed an entrance into that green and be able to putt? Because if you play the courses in the British Isles, that's what they all do. That's what they all do. Well, part of that is the is the land it's built on, though, right? I mean, part of it is because it's sort of that sandy, spongy soil. And part of it was history because those courses were built when the Pro V1 didn't exist and yeah. high trajectory irons didn't exist. So, and irrigation, irrigation didn't exist. So, 
though even the elite players back then were hitting these low trajectory, low spin balls that had to roll out in order to lose energy and come to rest. Right. And that's the part of the game. If I do nothing else with my career in America, I would love to have been the the promoter or reintroducer of that. Yeah. Uh, because I think even within my own peer group, uh, there's a lack of attention to those factors. Right. I remember, and this is this is going this is my own personal experience. One of maybe one of my first rounds ever as a caddy at Somerset Hills, and somebody had come just come back from a trip to Scotland, and so they were all wrapped up in what they learned in Scotland. So he was he was talking about doing these little pitch and run shots, these little bump and run shots. Uh, probably playing in places that he shouldn't be playing them because he was so excited about them. But because it was an old course, it was built in 1917, I think it was finished. Um, and it was built before there were, you know, major irrigation systems and all that kind of stuff. So it was built to be harder and faster than it is today. Um, you look at those, the way those are designed. And of course, Tellinghast was, was influenced by a lot of the, you know, Scottish architecture of, of the day. Um, so a lot of them have multiple entrances into the greens. Um, so that it was, it was interesting to, and I learned a lot just, you know, cause I, I learned how to play as a caddy. I was, I, I, I watched other people play and that's how I learned how to play. And I had, um, there was, you, you talk about people not carrying the ball very far. I remember catting for this, this one, it was great. It was the greatest loop to get. It was, uh, these two ladies, Mrs. Grimes was one of them and they, they'd play 18 holes in like two and a half hours. And that was because that was, that's the reason it was the best round to get. You'd get it. They'd take tee off at seven 30 in the morning. You'd be done. You'd get a second loop right away. Yeah. And, uh, Mrs. Grimes used to play, you'd hand her her driver and she'd just play mm -hmm. to the green. So she'd hit the driver off the, off the fairway. She'd hit the driver everywhere. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it was an easy loop, but it was fun to watch her play because she, she it, it reminded you that the ball was round. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing rolls like a ball. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, I think that, that I'm going to steal that one if you don't mind. Uh, you know, I think that golfers have forgotten that the ball is round. Yeah. No, I mean, how use it. <laughs> I, I, in fact, I don't know that they've forgotten. They just don't have the opportunity. You know, the, the golf course is... The, the designs don't allow it. The maintenance conditions don't allow it. And so when you give a golfer in America the opportunity, and there are so few courses where you can do it, that's why Bandon Dunes is so popular. It's right. still 20 years later, unique. There's nothing else like it in America. The, the courses that call themselves links like Pebble Beach, you're not hitting those shots. They're, you can't putt from 150 yards out. Like you can't abandon that's something that's that's extraordinary is is how much i remember the first time i, I visited st andrews and my dad and i went and played and um he was putting you know his caddy had him putting from 50 yards out and i was like oh, that's just that's just stunning to me it's, it's yeah. so it's so cool and it's, it's just fun you know and uh, it, it introduces a whole new layer of fun to the game that i think right. a lot of players kind of forget about uh, I think, it, you know, a, a new layer is almost understating it. You know, it goes from this two-dimensional thing to this sort of multi-dimensional uh, game where the 
playing a, an American country club, you're 50 yards from the green, you are definitely grabbing your loftiest wedge. Right. And you are hitting this high arcing shot with tons of backspin to stop it on the green. In right. Scotland, the same 50 yards, there could be an infinite number of ways that you could play that shot from putting it to wedging it to bump and running it to backboarding it, sideboarding it. I mean, right. all sorts of different things that you could do in order to get that ball close. And it would be based on the, the turf conditions, the wind, uh, how, you know, your confidence with different shots. Right. And so, you know, when I was a young teen, my my dad was instrumental in the establishment of the, the golf professional uh, greenkeepers association in Scotland. And, uh, and so he was friends with, all of the sort of senior greenkeepers in Scotland at the time, George Brown, who was at Turnbury, Walter Woods, who was at St. Andrews. My father was at Glen Eagles. And we were constantly going from our house to their houses at evenings and weekends as he was dealing with his association business. Right. And so I remember specifically, I was probably, I don't know, 13, 14 years old. I'm playing the iron course with my dad and George Brown, the superintendent at Turnbury. I mean, these are things that, you know, I pinch myself that I did as a teenager. Right. I, I get to the first par five uh, on the iron course and I ask George how far I am from the pin. Right. George shakes his head and he says, lad, it's nothing to do with how far away you are. How many balls you got in your bag? I reach in my bag and there's six balls in the bag. He reaches into his bag and he's got four or five. We lay out all, every ball, like nine or 10 golf balls. And he proceeds to hit every club in his bag to within, you know, <laughs> close. I mean, one puttable. Right. Uh, he says, see, and that lesson just stuck with me. Like this guy played every single club. I mean, he, I think I was like 180 out and he, and he hit, you know, nine iron and it, it chased and rolled and he hit it off his back foot and it rolled right. all the way up to the green. Right. And he took a, you know, I can't remember driver, you know, and, and dunted it with a driver and same thing. It scurried along, along the ground, you know, yeah. And he said, it's it's not about the distance. It's about how you see it. Right. You know, well, and it's, it's funny because I'll go out and play, I'll go out and play with a Sunday bag and I've done this for years, but it's, it's, well, I'll play, you know, five or six clubs and, you know, play the same course I always play, but play it with five or six clubs instead of 14. And it's another thing where, where it's just, you're, you, you're forced to come up with ideas on how to, how to approach this problem. And, you know, again, it just makes it fun for me. I, I think uh, you know, I, I, I would advocate that the club companies would probably disagree with me, but, you know, <laughs> you know, <they> would. <laughs> you know, would. You know I, I, I definitely think that especially, you know, I, I didn't have a full set of clubs until I was in well into my teens. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, my father as a low single digit golfer his whole life. I'm sure did that on purpose. He he yeah. wanted me to not have, you know, a nine iron. I had an eight iron and a wedge. Right. You so figure it out. <laughs> right. You're either going to chip the eight iron or you're going to back foot the, the wedge. Right. Uh, and one way or another, you got to figure it out. And I don't think I really thought about it. I, I think I, I, I had less clubs to select. So this club selection was absolutely automatic. You couldn't be between clubs because you're always between clubs. Right. Uh, right. And, and then you're not 
you're not really thinking that hard. Like, okay, I need to hit this one a little bit harder. I know I need to hit this one a little bit softer. And I, I think today, you know, we have automatons. That's twice I've used that word. That's where true. we're teaching our kids this driving range swing and every club should be 15 yards apart. And there, there's very little alteration in it until you get to a really elite level. And, they, and even then, it's probably wedges. Right. Well, no, I think that's true. Well, what do you think? It's it's in the last decade, maybe a little bit more. Uh, there, you see an effort out there in the world. Uh, you know, you talked about the forward tees as opposed to calling them the ladies' tees or the red tees or whatever. And there's been an effort to get people to play sort of the appropriate tees for your handicap or the appropriate tees for your game. And um, so there's been a little bit more of an effort towards that as opposed to. Um, you know, I, I paid, I paid my greens fee. I want to pay the whole bit of real estate. You know, I want to go back uh, to that. Get, what, what is, what is your perspective on that? Uh, I, I, I think that golfers should be playing the golf course suitable for their swing speed. Right. Okay. I mean, if you're, if the, the chap I just mentioned, who's in his seventies, you know, he's yeah. still a decent 10 handicap. Mm-hmm. But not from seventy two hundred yards. He's not. No. Right. He's a he's a ten handicap from sixty four hundred yards. Right. And he has a wonderful time at sixty four hundred yards. And what you know, there should be no push to make him go behind that. If anything, in another five years, he needs to move forward a tee, and he's at six thousand yards. Right. Uh, and so I, I think that I I think that the push to try and make people play the course that's best for their game is right but i don't think it's about handicap i think it's about swing speed so well it's it's carry distance yeah yeah that's right so if if you're a if you're a 21 year old who's got 120 mile an hour swing speed but you're an 18 handicap there's not much point putting you at six thousand yards no agreed just hit it too far yeah. So that guy needs to go back right he needs to learn a little bit to get a, a little more control in his swing uh, so I think that the tees are all about swing speed, not about handicap. It's and, interesting. Uh, I like that. Two, like two that. golfers uh, with the same swing speed should be sit playing the same tee, and then the handicap system should adjust accordingly. Nice. I like that. I like that. Make that makes a lot of sense. I mean, because I keep going back uh, Somerset Hills again, where I where I grew up, because that's how I learned the game. Uh, is I think it's 6,500 yards, maybe pushing 6,600 yards now. Uh, they found like an extra 60 yards one one year or maybe 40 yards, I think, uh, on the eighth hole alone because they found one of these old plans. And there was an old tee that was back behind, back in the, sunk back in the woods that they stopped using years ago. And they went and covered it up. And it was, it was a 203-yard par three. And it always had sort of a big sort of runway coming into the you know why they covered it up (laughs) and they had covered it up so now it was back the the old tee was 235 yards and uh because it was designed for a time when the ground was hard and you can run so it was designed to be a par three that you hit a driver on yeah and um it was it's a really cool hole now it'd be interesting to know you know that that if you go to bandon all the courses from the green tees that 99 percent of the players play from are about 6,300. Yeah. And has that really changed? I mean, it hasn't changed in the 20 years since I built the first one. 
And I don't know whether it's changed 20 years before that. Yeah, all of this equipment that that may well be negatively affecting the elite game and the use of uh, that equipment on old courses like Somerset Hills by elite players. But for the rest of us, you know, I, I don't really want to ski with skis from 40 years ago. I don't want to play tennis with tennis rackets from 40 years ago. No. You know, so if you give me modern golf equipment and modern golf balls and I have a bit of a better time, it yeah. is meant to be fun. It is meant yeah. to be recreation. Right. I mean, it's a game after all. It's a game. It's a game. I mean, it is not life and death. Yeah. I tell my own crew this weekly. I'm like, stop stressing. This is not life and death. We are not saving lives here. You know, the, the golfers... Uh, will love some stuff and hate others. And that is almost part of it. If they if they sort of shrug their shoulders at everything we do, then we didn't elicit emotion from them. And that is as much about golf as the number you write on your scorecard. Golfers are out there to enjoy the great outdoors with people they like, uh, enjoying the visuals of a golf course. Because for the vast majority of golfers, they are not able to hit two let alone three good shots in a row. <laughs> it's true. It's, it's true. true. Well, it's, it, the old joke is, you know, you, you, what's the what's the shot that's going to bring you back next time? It's one shot. That's all it is. So and it's the only it, ones I remember. It's kind of true, you know. It's true. It's true. You know, I, I can't remember the exact story. Something years ago when they asked Tiger, you know, how many perfect shots in a round? And he said, you know, one. Uh, or it was some tiny number right uh, and then you think how many perfect shots do i hit then in a year it's probably none <laughs> or one you know by his standards so yeah. I, it's a game of utter imperfection and constant disappointment oh, uh, and, and yet back we come back we come the oh, the the promise that the next shot and tomorrow might be better, that somehow our resilience will be rewarded. Uh, and again, I go back to life that, you know, it's it's a great analogy for life that resilience will be rewarded. That perfect shot is just a moment away. If you just keep persevering, uh, that you will get that joy and that moment of joy will make up for all the disappointment. That's cool. I will reserve the right to call you again, though, because I there's there's more I want to talk about, and uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. No problem, Lyle. I I appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time. Oh, absolutely. Thanks. Thank you for taking the time. This is great fun. Okay. Well, have a great day. You See too. You Bye. All right. Take it easy. So that was David McClay Kidd. Uh, I had a great conversation with him. I really enjoyed it. I hope you did too. Uh, And if you did, uh, there's an extra 15 minutes or so of conversation on our Patreon site. Again, that's patreon.com slash makingthingsmatters. Uh, We also have uh, some merchandise on the the store site, which is on uh, thestoryforge.com, the-story-forge.com, and the shop link at the top. And uh, thank you for being here. We appreciate you listening. If you find yourself enjoying the StoryForge podcast and embracing the idea that making things matters, give us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you listen to these things. It helps others find the show and hopefully enjoy it as much as you do. 
All recording, editing, interviewing, scheduling, and executive producing tasks are handled by yours truly, Lyle Smith of NimbleSmith, the content marketing agency. This podcast would not be possible without the sincerely excellent help of our friend and producer, Anthony Sergi, who makes a number of other podcasts that matter, including A Guest in the House about all things hip-hop, and fantastic and brand new The Career Chat Room, hosted by HR pro Aaron Sergi. Music for the program is from the Jody Nardone Trio, Lights Will Guide You Home album. If you like the work we're doing, please share the StoryForge link far and wide and tell all your friends about us. And you can always send us questions or suggestions through the Tell Us Your Story link on the website. Or support us on our Patreon site. You can learn more at patreon.com slash makingthingsmatters. Or you can shop our store on the website at thestoryforge.com. That's the-story-forge.com. And click the shop link at the top of the page. Thank you for listening.